I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Schreier. Hello. 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 Yay. We are, Yay. We are um, <laughs> emerging from the Matrix to talk to you all. We are in the real world, hooked oh, up to our... The goo world. Dina calls it the goo world, and I love that about her. Because it, <laughs> the goo world. It's the it world is kind of a lot of goo. has to emerge out of goo in order right. to enter enter reality right there's the the world of delicious lattes and the world of um jello of gelatinous goo <laughs> yeah and kind of the two worlds and gruel yeah gruel that they yeah. all eat on their spaceship though also now a world of strawberries exactly Thank goodness because as we all know very well cypher was willing to stay in the matrix and betray his friends just to eat a delicious steak in the first yes. movie and you can scarcely blame him except now Thanks to Resurrections, maybe, mm-hmm. question mark, you can have a delicious steak in the goo world? I don't yeah. know. They didn't they, show that. They didn't mention livestock. It wasn't clear. You can Well, you can have strawberries with your goo, with your glop. Like, yeah. Like, I mean, you can't have oatmeal without strawberries, so it makes sense. Right, they yeah, you got to slice first up. For their yeah, gruel. slice up some, some strawberries. And I would think that first would come the agriculture, and then eventually they would be able to start with livestock, though... That's a da- that's a road that we've already learned is maybe not a great idea. So maybe they'll all just be vegetarians in the future. They might be. They might be. They might be making like pseudo meats of some kind, mm, like lab That's true. They're pretty meats. advanced. I bet that the the uh, synthians could help them with that. Oh, too. I'm sure synthians. I actually think that Cipher Cipher betrayed them because uh, he made a joke about Ginny Sack's weight, and then he <laughs> got in real trouble, and they tried. To, then he burnt down a stable and killed Tony's horse, and it was a real problem. Now, what listeners might not know is that Jason is a fan of the television show The Sopranos, and Joey Pants was an actor on both of these programs. And little does he know, I've been watching The Sopranos for the past 16 years. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, Oh, here we go. I've really opened the floodgates to it. Oh, man. Already Uh, way off the rails. This is a lot of triple-click deep cuts. We haven't even introduced the show. This is. We're off in the deep end here at the beginning. I don't think, Maddie, I don't think it's a... Deep cut when it happened like <laughs> two weeks ago by publication time. I guess exactly. That's true. But what if what if this is this is a Max Fun listener's first time checking out Triple Click? They just saw yes. the Matrix Resurrections. They haven't listened to our show. They don't know we're a video game podcast. They're just checking out the bonus feed and they want to know what our deal is. And they're like, right. "Who the heck are these three goofballs? What are well, they talking then we about?" We should we should uh, introduce what this thing that we're doing is. Yeah, let me let me introduce it. Let me let me zoom in out. Though I will say that most podcasts are like minimum of twenty minutes of inside jokes and. Bull- before they start talking about anything. So uh, I think we're doing pretty well by, by those yeah. standards. Um, yeah, yes. Uh, hello. 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 Listeners. Hello, Maximum Fun members. Thanks for, for being here. Um, we started in the deep end, but we're going to kind of dog paddle to the shallow end here. This is a uh, Matrix Beans cast, which means we're spilling the beans on the Matrix, the entire Matrix saga, really. The trilogy, which we will discuss some, and then, of course, the new Matrix Resurrections. We are recording this a little ahead of publication time, so um, just to, so you can have that context. This is a little earlier than we usually record, but that's because we all just watched the movie, the new one. And actually, we all rewatched the trilogy as well. So yes. it's kind of fresh in our minds, and we have a lot to talk about. As you can tell, we were kind of diving right in to the Matrix Resurrections. But now we're going to rewind a little bit. We're going to rewind all the way back. In fact, we're going to rewind 22 years 
which is pretty <laughs> crazy. <laughs> which is pretty yeah. crazy to think about. This is upsetting. We're just starting off with that. Yeah. Wow. Passage um, of time acknowledgement. Twenty two years. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. I don't like it, but that's fine. I guess. Nineteen ninety nine. Where were you? Yeah, that's crazy, man. I was twelve years old when I first watched The Matrix. Yeah, I was. Uh, cool. I was uh, nineteen, I guess, or eighteen, mm. I think. So we're gonna talk about that first, I think, because. As much as this movie, the first Matrix, is 22 years old, it feels pretty timeless in a way that I would say not many movies from 1999 do. Um, so, yeah, let's, uh, Maddie, how about you start? What uh, what was your experience of watching the first Matrix? So I didn't see it right when it came out. I would have been 13 then, but I did. I don't remember seeing it till I was 14 because I know I was in high school. And my first time being in the vicinity of the movie The Matrix was when it was playing in the background at a party, which is the mm. worst way to watch The <laughs> Matrix. But I, I had a, a male friend who threw a lot of house parties in high school, and he was really into the guns, lots of guns scene. So I remember us fast forwarding to that on a VHS tape so and funny. watching it and him being like, isn't this so cool? Which, what does that tell you about the expectations set by the first Matrix film Especially and how people funny, may or may right? not have felt about the yeah. subsequent Matrix films? That line specifically, that's uh, It that's really sums funny. everything up, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I got kind of the wrong idea about what the Matrix was, I think. And then my mother, uh, who listens to the show, shout out to my mom, uh, loved the Matrix as well because who didn't? And she sort of gave me a brief recap of all the body horror moments in it that she knew would freak me out as they did. There's some truly horrifying body horror in the first Mm -hmm. Matrix movie that Mm -hmm. is notable. And she was like, okay, you know about all that stuff. You need to watch it, though. This is a great movie. So she rented it for me from Blockbuster and like set me up by myself in our dark basement where I watched it completely alone and had the transformative experience with The Matrix that I think everyone has when they watch it for the first <laughs> nice. time, which is just being astounded by everything introduced by it. I'd never seen anything like it before. The idea of a hacker who was hacking literal reality and escaping what he thought was real, like that was just the coolest shit ever as far as science fiction premises go and I loved everything about it and I wanted to literally be Trinity because who didn't um, at that time <laughs> nice. so yeah that was my first time Maddie do you remember I have this this memory of like a screen cap of Neo's mouth getting closed yes. but it's like in transition oh, yeah. yep. maybe that was like on the DVD or something it was like one of the first things yeah. you saw because I have a that mem- that one image is just burned into my brain of him with just the line the so it's like mid fuse yep. it's yeah. like mid fuse Goo lips. That yeah. and the bug going into his stomach Ooh, was yeah. just such oh, yeah, a, a gross memory for me. But it's made up for by the fact that everybody is so freaking cool. Like Morpheus mm-hmm. and Trinity and Neo are just the coolest trio of all time. And you can watch it over and over. And then you forgive the weird bug scene. Nice. Jason, what was your experience of watching The Matrix for the first time? Yeah, I don't I don't really remember like watching it for the first time uh-huh. or anything, but I remember loving it as a kid and thinking it was one of the coolest things because when you're 12 and you watch a movie that's like a bunch of cool cyberpunk right, dudes and kind of and R-rated, coats, you know. Yeah. yeah you're like, yeah. "Oh man, this is the coolest thing ever." Um <laughs> and watching it today, it's like it's also extremely the coolest cool. Thing the first ever. one yeah. has just aged. <laughs> it's really aged incredibly well and like even the technology stuff like it doesn't really mm-hmm. feel like like you're it's 
obviously there are phone booths and some people might be like, wow, what is that? But like watching it now, you're not, it's not embarrassing the way that some of those early like 1990s stuff about the internet or stuff about involving computers often is. Um, Just a couple of moments that are kind of like frayed at the seams in the movie. But for the most part, it's aged well. And the action is still incredible. And like, unlike anything, even that has been done to this day, there's just so much stuff in that movie that is just iconic. Obviously, it set the tone for so many things with bullet time, especially, but um, and and just like was in, immensely influential on every action movie to come. But um, going back to it today, it's just like yeah, so iconic, so many cool cool moments. Um, the the sequels, I have kind of less less n- nice things to say about, but but I do remember that my my memory of that is like everyone at my high school just being incredibly so excited about the matrix one that when the sequels came out we were all like let's go see midnight showings yep, and stuff like that yep. so that i have fonder me- or more vivid memories right. of than seeing the original you were a little but i remember bit the original was just awesome yeah that makes mm-hmm. sense so yeah i was you know you were closer to the age that i was when i saw the first matrix when the sequels came out yes. yeah so my memory I, I i have a very distinct memory of this because when I was a little bit younger, Johnny Mnemonic had come out, which is mm-hmm. these sort of maligned, you know, not really as good. I know it has its cult followers, but it's a Keanu Reeves cyberpunk movie that came out before this. And I remember seeing a TV commercial for The Matrix or maybe before a f- movie at the theater. And it was so vague. It was a lot of I don't you can probably watch it online, but it was a lot of Morpheus just being like. I can't tell you what the Matrix is, Neo. Uh, I have to show uh-huh. you. And I was like, the Matrix? What the hell? And it was like some fight <laughs> scenes. And I was like, oh, it's like Keanu Reeves in sunglasses. It's sort of cyberpunk. Okay. I guess this is kind of like that Johnny Mnemonic movie that I really didn't like. And then I remember, <laughs> I have this vivid memory that the review in the Herald Times, which is the newspaper in Bloomington, Indiana, where I grew up, reviewed it and was like, this movie is awesome. And I never really, I didn't like the reviewer. I thought he was kind of this elitist jerk at the time. But I was just, I just remember reading the review and being like, whoa, this guy seems really into it. He gave it an A. And then I still didn't know anything about it. And I went to see it in the theater on opening weekend with my friends. And it completely blew my fucking mind. Like I had the quintessential Matrix experience of going in totally cold, watching Mm -hmm. the movie, being like, what is happening for the first 25 minutes? Because I had no yeah. idea. It was like, I can remember being in a world before the concept of the Matrix mm-hmm. had like unlocked that thing in my brain that you can then never get away from. And then just, yeah, being like, I was just in love with the movie and still am. I've, I've seen this movie like more than 10 times probably over the last you know, 22 years. Um, I remember buying it on DVD. It was like the first DVD I bought because I Yeah, could... it was big on DVD yes. for a lot of people. I think that mm-hmm. was a whole... It was like the first, like... Because DVDs came into prominence around then, and it was the first movie that people would really... Yeah, and this movie, because of the bullet time sequences, had surround uh-huh. sound stuff in 5.1 yeah. that if you could get it working... And I would always use that bullet time sequence where he dodges the bullets to test because you can hear the bullets going behind you in your mm-hmm. home theater. So anyways, I loved it. I watched it. Um, it was really excited for the sequels, etc. Kirk, that Morpheus thing, wasn't there an ad campaign called What is the Matrix? Is that what, what you saw? In the, I, don't that rem- something else? I don't remember if that was the name of the ad campaign. There was something that was like, what is, I remember, well, I just remember seeing like posters plastered that said, what is the Matrix? Yeah. I mean, it was that, that was part of their thing. Th- it was the ad campaign for the movie. So if that was the ad campaign, then yeah. I mean, it was, that's what it was. It was a lot of vague questions 
that were then answered by this film. And so, yeah, rewatching it, what I was struck by really, and I was more excited to rewatch the next two movies, but I'm always struck every time I watch it by just what a absolute banger the whole movie is, how great the pacing is. There's no greater fight scene in the whole series, just in terms of emotional impact, than when Smith and Neo fight in the subway station. Like when Neo stops and turns around and faces mm-hmm. him and the music plays and they fight and he's like, my name is Neo, that whole fight. I mean, whole, it's still just amazing. And like it, it just it's so good. But the thing that really stuck out to me and I think that is going to be important for our discussion of the series as a whole was that. The first Matrix movie was interpreted by so many different people, so many different ways. You've got Maddie, your friend, the guns, lots of guns guy, who's just really <laughs> yep. into the guns, which is probably and the, the fight scenes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the most squeamish part of the movie when you rewatch it, like the part where they're just killing all the guards, when you know that in mm-hmm. that version of the Matrix, those are people. <laughs> and it's uh-huh. kind of like, oh, and this is kind of, I think it was right pre-Columbine, but it's right around when... We're starting mm-hmm. to reckon with the idea of mass shootings, and this and this film really glorifies guns. I think it's very interesting that um, Keanu Reeves never picks up a gun in the new one, but we'll get there. Yes, um, yeah. But uh, but so I, you know, there was that. There was the whole idea of reality being, you know, being whatever a, a wool that's pulled over our eyes, yeah. right? Which was which was very common. But in the end, this is a romantic movie, and that was the thing that I actually loved about it is that. Mm-hmm. It's all this cool fighting and technology and he downloads the codes for Kung Fu and whatever. But the end of the movie is like magic. There's a yes. magic like Disney sequence, basically. The power of love. Yeah. yeah. Where like he dies and he then. He gets like a sleeping beauty kiss at the end that like powers him up. Yes. And it was so <laughs> unexpected, even by me, even at the time, because I was like, well, this is like, I bet he's going to die. This is going to have this dark ending, this dark cyberpunk movie. And instead it's like, no, she's like, Neo, I love you. You can't be dead. And she kisses him and he like comes back to life and like they win. And I remember that was really what made me love the movie. And that sentimental streak really you know then gets mm-hmm. gets amplified by the sequels mm-hmm. and is the part that some people hate but yes exactly it's fun <laughs> yes. yeah. agree the the thing that strikes me about watching it to re-watching it today is how obvious a, an allegory for um for the director lana and and lily, lily sister, yeah the, the two of them and their uh their journey like transitioning and like mm-hmm. how how obvious an allegory it is like that at the end you never would have i mean i certainly never would have never even would have slightly occurred to me as a 12 year old watching this that him saying my name is neo at the mm-hmm. end is like him trying to reclaim this identity or claim this identity that this guy is trying to dead name him and, yeah. and talk him out of um I just had would have had no possible idea, and I don't. I imagine that's the case with most people because most people had no idea that that the Wachowskis were going well, on this journey. Maybe most cis people. Well, I don't know. I feel like I've I've seen well, a lot of essays from people who watched the movie and were like, the idea of the world having dictated roles that felt fake to me, or like being alienated, really spoke to some aspect of my queer experience. And like, yeah, queer people are a minority. I think you're right, Jason and that the majority of people watching the film think, probably didn't think of it that as that analogy. Well, but I also think, I mean, you didn't know anything about the creators of this of movie course, at the time. Yeah. That's more more along the lines of what I'm thinking. They were so closeted and, and so right. on. And also, 
remember 1999 was like not that many years after Ace Ventura. Like this was still a like deeply transphobic time in Hollywood. It was not a time. Gay marriage wasn't even legal yet. Not until the early 2000s. No. And I mean, and that's gay marriage. Like when I, in 1999, like no one was talking about trans rights or trans identity. I had no idea about any of that and wouldn't have. No, that wasn't a conversation. It was still a joke. But the Wachowskis had originally intended to include a character who presented as a different gender in the the real world, the goo world versus the Matrix. That was Switch. Which is just an interesting idea of like, what is reality deep down for you? And who do you who do you think you truly are? And is that different from this role that's been pre-assigned to you by this fake overlayer of the the world that that feels fake to you in some way? And that I think has been further complicated. I know we're not talking about the next few movies yet, no, but No, we are, we are. We've I moved think, on. Go ahead. I th- <laughs> I think part we, of what's interesting about it is that there are some people who watch The Matrix and really enjoy the binary of humans versus machines and really want it to be a simple war movie. But the next two movies and, and three movies, I would argue, are all about screwing around with that binary and yes. being like, no, actually, maybe The Matrix isn't necessarily just a cold, dark, bad thing. It's kind of interesting. And there's like ways you can play within that world that aren't necessarily bad. And also not all machines and programs are bad. Some of them are capable of love. And this is more of a philosophical discussion than a black and white morality tale of humans knowing the truth and, and machines being cold and bad. And that's uncomfortable but fascinating <laughs> to me like, yes. I, I really enjoy that that's w- the direction that the movies go even though it's way harder to get on board with it i and is for a lot of people still to this day yes so agree and we can we can use this as a way to sort of move to discussion of the matrix reloaded and matrix revolutions these both came out in 2003 were shot at the same time sequels that were very divisive crazy that they came out in the same year can we just like say that for a second like this is so different from how massive franchises operate now where it's like yes they were shot at the same time but they came out within months of each other like you Six months. It was exactly like, six months. I remember two it said years to see Avengers Endgame or whatever. Like you at the end of Reloaded, it said six months coming in six months. Although you did wild. Endgame was just a year after Infinity War. So. Well, but you know what I mean though. Like Endgame was like thousands of movies in build up and like just constant like oh hype hype yeah, hype. It was like, the same thing it, with Lord of the Rings. Lord of the yes, Rings came out. Yeah, one year and like after then the, the Hobbit being dragged common. out into like you know multiple wow. movies. Like do you know what I'm saying though? Like the yeah. franchise of movies happened post-Matrix, whereas the Matrix, they were like, no, we have something specific we want to say and we're going to go ahead and say it and bye. <laughs> well, I think, Maddie, go. I don't think, I think the calculus there was that it ended on such a frustrating cliffhanger that people would have been pissed off to have to wait more than six months. Like, I remember people in the theater were like, that was it? Like, yeah, I can't believe we have to wait. We had to wait a while after that Thanos snap. I don't know. I just feel like it's it's different. Well, but that felt more like a satisfying movie. I don't know. I, I'm pretty negative on Reload and revolutions for a number of reasons. Um, But one of them is that neither of them really feel like complete stories. They feel like they're taking, they actually feel like they're really franchising this movie in a way that like I just did not enjoy because suddenly you go from this like um, neat story that is just about love and emotion and human struggles and you add all this lore to it. It felt very Star Wars prequely in that suddenly it's just throwing um, dozens more characters at you and these like 
like uh, these these new cultures that um, uh, like hint at vague philosophical like notions, but don't actually wind up saying anything all that satisfying and, and basically expanding the world in a way that I personally didn't really enjoy. So I actually feel the opposite, um, Maddie. It almost feels like The Hobbit in that the, the, mm. the next two Matrix movies, for me at least, like bloated this series into something that um, it wasn't when it was just one movie. So let me poke at that a little bit, or let me let's let's chew on this Star Wars thing because I think that there is there are some interesting comparisons there. So Maddie, the thing you were talking about, where the Matrix becomes this exploration of the dissolution of binaries, which I think the series has become subsequently with each subsequent film, more and more of that. And I should say, I know I'm always shouting out her work, but Emily Vanderwerf has done incredible writing on this. Obviously, yeah. you know, a, a very brilliant trans woman critic has a lot to say about The Matrix, but she's also just a huge fan of The Matrix and a big Matrix nerd and, like, has just been doing some great writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And a great writer. Very accessible writer. <laughs> yes. So um, credit to her just in that I've read a lot of her stuff and it's informed some of my own thinking. But there is this thing that you mentioned earlier, Maddie, there's the sort of the way that this can sort of speak to a sort of broader experience of looking at the world and thinking, oh, well, maybe the way the world tells me things are, the way the culture tells me things are, is sort of bullshit and like I don't actually have to follow these binaries and I can just you know chart my own course and then that leads to a more radical thinking in general about like our whole society and everything in it. and actually wait this is all made up in all of these things that oppress people in different ways like maybe we just can reimagine them entirely and get rid of everything and I think mm-hmm. that this series does that and Here's the thing with comparing it to the Star Wars prequels. I get what you're saying, like with the with Reloaded and Revolutions, and that they do add more information and they do but I think that the I think there's a crucial difference. And I think that is that Reloaded and Revolutions, they add more information to the Matrix film to the original Matrix, to the world, but they do it specifically with a very focused goal of complicating what the first Matrix was saying. And I think the Star Wars prequels do not do that, and that's the whole problem with the Star Wars prequels. So we talked we talked a lot about Star Wars in the past. So when we talked about like Jedi Fallen Order, we got a little bit into the idea of Force users who live in this world between the light side and the dark side, right? Because mm-hmm. if you want to talk witches. about binaries, like Star Wars is all about these same binaries, the red pill, the blue pill, the light side and the dark side of the Force. And what made Star Wars so neat and clean was it was just like, Well, if you're on the light side, you're good. If you're on the dark side, you're bad. And that's always then eventually been the thing that felt a little unsatisfying about it because it's like, well, you know, that's actually kind of boring if like you're just Mm -hmm. like pure good or pure evil and only Han Solo gets to be interesting. And it's like worse when you have midi-chlorians that are like predestining you to having a certain outlook on life or whatever. It's bizarre. So going to this comparing the prequel to the, the Matrix sequels. In the prequels, you kind of, it's just the same thing. Like, it keeps being, it never really explores anything interesting in this area between the light side and the dark side. And in fact, they kind of never even get critical of the Jedi until the subsequent sequels, right? Like, it's never complicating the narrative in a way that feels intentional. It's like fleshing out all this weird shit about, like, trade unions and other planets and the Senate and Senate mm-hmm. rules. And you're kind of like, who cares about any of this? Like, what is this telling me about the fundamental, like, storytelling of Star Wars? So the sequels to The Matrix, to me anyways, rewatching them, that's a really specific thing where they're saying, okay, in the first Matrix, we told this story where... People awoke to their new identity and they claimed this new identity and it was this like really powerful story. 
But in doing so, we actually established a bunch of binaries that we don't actually believe in narratively and want to kind of undo and tease out and like rework and sort of challenge in this way. So then the story of Reloaded and Resurrections, or sorry, Reloaded and Revolutions winds up being the story of, well, actually, I think we need to coexist with the machines because like this was mm-hmm. kind of our fault to begin with. And like we have to find a way, you know, to to make this thing work because we made them and we're actually the ones who destroyed the sky. Hmm. And like maybe <laughs> there isn't this binary at all. And it winds yeah. up being it challenges what was so neat and so great about the first movie, but in a way that I think is actually really interesting and ultimately more narratively satisfying. Yeah, but it's definitely a very different experience to yes. watch in a way that I I would agree, Jason, it is similar to watching people talk about trade unions in the Star Wars prequels if you sort of compare it directly to the sensation of watching the Merovingian talk about, like, a cake he made that makes a girl <laughs> orgasm. Like, there are certainly parts of the sequels that I'm like... I don't know why this is here. This is a lot of explanation of a thing a program can do within the Matrix that, okay, it's cool to know how the programs work and that there are a whole lot of different kinds of programs and that there are like early programs from previous Matrixes, like literal Cain and Abel programs. What does that say about the world? That introduces more unanswered questions than answered questions. But And it can get to a point where I'm not bored by it, but I have seen people respond to Reloaded and um, Revolutions by saying they find them boring simply because it's so far from what they expected the movies to be about that they are turned off by it. Whereas I'm just like, I'm going on a journey here. Like, this is not where I thought this was going to go, but I'm just going to come along with it because why not? And also there's still... At least in Reloaded, there's still some really cool fight scenes that, to me, help yeah. it out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, I, there's the motorcycle scene my and, God. like, I mean, Morpheus with the katana on the truck, which, yeah. why are those scenes there? They don't really need to be there either, but they're sick as Yeah, hell. except they so definitely need to be there because they're awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I actually think the, the neo Seraph. Uh, fight scene is my favorite of the it's a good all one. Of the oh, it's movies. amazing! Yeah, um, but that said, I mean, Kirk, to your point about the kind of the 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 all the lore being added in order to prove that grander point, I think that's true to an extent. But there's also so much more than that. I mean, between like the architect's speech and yeah. all the nonsense with like V making missiles and this random kid who keeps showing up and gets in a suit and all these different commanders who I don't even know their names because they're also generic and boring like that dude who's in the robot suit like firing at the end of things and sacrificing himself. there's just so much stuff and it's so there's so much wasted time on things like the entire battle for zion is just such a waste of time um the the entire like 40 minute uh beginning of reloaded where they're just in the real world and it's just the rave and and the weird sex scene between See, Neo I and like Trinity that and, part. Like, i i like it because it's like the only time you get to see the humans being happy and you like know what they're fighting for in that moment like i know the rave scene is controversial but it is just human beings we know what they're fighting for they're fighting because they're they're in the real world and they're trying to yes it's nice to show it i don't think you would want to assume that the audience knows that i think the the point that i'm making is kind of like the equivalent of the trade embargoes is all the stuff i just listed and not to mention like the oracle and architect who are just intentionally like obtuse these these characters who just speak in the most vague terms uh, about nonsense all the time and it's just trying to cram in so much stuff 
enough that I think it really loses the thread. So, um, okay. I think <laughs> that the architects in particular actually think that that's kind of a great scene. Now that I've yeah. seen it enough times <laughs> and I like really it. know, because I think... <laughs> I mean, it's it's great in that it's cool and then you come away from it and you're like, what? what? what <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think that what it's revealing is really important and really cool because he's revealing that there is no one, that the one is a system of control and that the idea that some superhero is going to show up and lead us to freedom is actually just a way of controlling us, which is amazing and like still relevant today. Because then Revolutions, I do think, is like a very flawed movie. I mean, I will not deny that just as a movie watching it, you're kind of like, with like what happens in this movie exactly? Like, what's the three act structure? And like the ending is is odd where it's like, well, how exactly can Neo control the machines now? And they sort of hand wave some things. That stuff is fine. Or I'm fine hand waving. (laughs) I don't mind it. I'm just saying those are the kinds of things that people left the theater going, wait, what? Like that is not necessarily what you want people to be saying. Well, and the whole cliffhanger from Reloaded is just kind of thrown away where it's like, oh yeah, he's in purgatory and now he's out of purgatory. It's just so bizarre. So much. Oh, and I forgot the last of the exiles. Like what is all this? It's just throwing so much nonsense at you. Oh yeah, they're exiled programs. But I don't think that that's nonsense. (laughs) I don't think any of it's nonsense. I think it all does have a purpose. Okay. And the purpose is to get rid of the idea of one hero who's the grand savior for everyone. And then that's completely undercut at the end when he does become the grand hero who's the savior for everyone. Well, he only becomes that though because everybody helps him do it. And also like the, the, the whole idea of the movie, right, is there is not a one, right? Like the the one is this like fake thing that was set up, whatever, to like to to maintain control, and the mm-hmm. one always makes the same choice to like go back into the matrix, and then you know we'll and let some people it. live, we'll reboot it, and we'll do this again. But Neo doesn't make that choice, and he goes and gets Trinity. So already it's like, well, the love between these two people is more powerful than the one, which of course is then examined or uh, uh, looked at a whole lot more in Resurrections. But no, the the fact that they're showing all these people, that they show the rave, that they show, you know, whatever, what's her name with the rockets, like trying to work together to fight off the machines, just that we see all these other people, that I think is really interesting when taken in the context of the Wachowskis' broader filmography, because they really become obsessed with the idea of the things that connect us. And you can see, like, now that I've watched Sense8 and Cloud Atlas in particular, but also resurrections and you know even some of their other later movies you can see that they are like no longer we're just going to tell a hero's story about a guy becoming a superhero and saving the world and instead it's like we need to look at like how human relationships are powerful and the ways that people can work together to you know like whatever to fight off oppression and i think that's mm-hmm. also true of the exiles and the and the programs in the subsequent movies like in the in the two sequels like i kind of noticed that the the more interesting characters, the farther along this series gets, the more often it is that an interesting character is actually a, a machine, like is a program rather than mm-hmm. a person. It becomes more interested in the programs as it goes. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. I think it's kind of, it's uh, at least conceptually cool. But uh, Kirk, I don't understand. How are you making the, how does how does Resur- Resurrections make the point, or sorry, how do Re- Reloaded and Revolutions make the point that Neo, that there is no one and there is no Jesus savior figure when well, he is literally like at the end of the, uh, at the end of the movie, he literally like grows these angel wings and saves the day <laughs> by being the only one who can communicate to the machine and make the promise that he'll kill Agent Smith. Like there's no working together at the end of that movie. It's him taking 
down Agent Smith by himself and therefore saving the day. Like that is entirely like a superhero Jesus story. Well, but he doesn't. And he's even he's like they even carry his body like he's like treated like the actual messiah. Right. But the way that he saves the day is by brokering a truce where machines and humans can coexist. Like he doesn't like destroy. Yeah. And he's the only person capable of doing that because he's the only person who can communicate and move machines. And he's the only person who can kill agents. I mean, the one exists in that sense. Like there is like a human being in the Matrix and in the real world who has some sort of like wacky thing yeah, I mean, that he is allows the one, them to like, see the code. But that's what I'm saying. I just don't see how the movie undercuts that message. Like, it feels like it's very much I think it undercuts like a- it by making it nonviolent and by yeah. making it about brokering a peace treaty, which is about, like, not killing all the machines or killing all the humans. Like, neither of those things happen. And at the end of the three movies, the war is over. It's not as though one side or the other has won. It's simply that the war has ended. And that, and it is still, I mean, I'm not going to deny the Jesus thing. Like, there is a a glowing cross on screen when Neo dies at the end of the third film. Like, that's in there. There's still some The One, capital T, capital O stuff in there. But I think what is being undercut is just the assumption that people had when they watched the first movie, which was that Neo was going to be going into the Matrix and saving humans from machines one by one and bringing them into the real world where humans would kill, work together to kill all machines. And that that would be the plot that I think people mm. expected after concluding the first movie was right. The, well, let me just to answer what you were saying, Jason, the yes, the point it's not that he's like not the magical chosen one because he is he has this special ability. He becomes almost part machine. It's that the way that the the one hero narrative resolves isn't like he is now the mighty hero who shows up and smites down the machine lords and like takes over the matrix and like you know can control it now which is sort of implied by the end of the first movie and instead it's like no actually he sacrifices himself and like dies so that he can like sort of reset things to zero and broker a peace and a coexistence between machines and people which is just not where things felt like they were going to go at the end of the first film so it's a big subversion I guess so. It doesn't, I guess it, uh, a part of it is also that it doesn't really feel like it's saying anything interesting because instead of the humans and machines brokering peace by finding common ground and like talking about their, resi- their, their differences, it's they broke pe- broker peace because this other like big bad has showed up that's that everybody hates. And so it's like enemy of, of my enemy is my friend sort of thing. And so mm-hmm. it's not even a real peace as we then see in Resurrection. Well, it's a real peace in that they could have just destroyed Smith and then gone and killed all the humans and they didn't sure but it's a piece that isn't built on anything interesting i don't know it's i don't agree it it feels like the messages that it's trying to explore here are not really don't feel fully fleshed out to me um or don't feel fully um it it doesn't feel like it's making as interesting points as maybe we want it to we want to believe that it is i don't know i think it is (laughs) Well, don't you think that that's kind of the magic of the Matrix? I mean, the the magic of these movies is that they continue to spark all of these different interpretations. I mean, that is something that is explored at length in Resurrections, which let's get into. Because, that. I mean, for years now, for more than 20 years, the Matrix has been this kind of 
you know, it's it's a thing that you can look at and it's a Rorschach test or something. It's something that people can look at and come away with all these different interpretations, which is pretty amazing. You can see this like deep and resonant trans narrative. You can also see mm-hmm. like, like a story a Christian of Christian allegory, a Christian in there allegory. As well. Absolutely, you can see an anti-capitalist. Yep, critique. a leftist anti-capitalist yep. critique. And as we've unfortunately learned, you can also see a hard right-wing metaphor for yes. like the feminist yeah. conspiracy that's ruling us all. All of those mm-hmm. interpretations like can exist from this movie. So I don't know, like I get what you're saying about it raising questions that it maybe doesn't always answer satisfactorily. I think that that's true. But I love the way that this series raises questions. And I love that especially Revolutions raised all these questions and then was like, peace, trilogy's over. We're not going to make another one for, you know, whatever whatever it is, 18 years. Like have fun talking about this. Yeah, I know. I think that part's fine. No, I, I, I do think, I, again, that's not my issue with the movie necessarily, that it raises all these questions and, and doesn't answer them or that it doesn't really make strong points. My problem with the movie is that it's bloated as hell with all these characters who I just did not give a shit about and all these plot lines that that like just waste time. Um, hmm. There's just so much of it is just uh, that's how it felt like the prequels to me is just bloating with unnecessary lore and characters and like right. councils. Council. It's talk. interesting that you liked Resurrections then. Well, Resurrections is a much more straightforward, like cleaner, sharper movie. Resurrections, there's no time wasted with debates on a at the council in Resurrections. Well, there's not a literal council, but there's plenty of weird shit in Resurrections. I mean, I love it. I just just no, no, no. It's not. It's not weird shit. Weird shit. I guess my issue is more weird shit that isn't in the service of the story or isn't in the service of anything. Resurrections right. is like a, a complete story. I don't agree with you, but I just, yeah, I just think it's interesting. So, okay, Resurrections. So now I've seen this movie twice. I just watched it again last night because I, I really I really enjoyed it. And I watched it with um, Emily and her folks last night who I had to recap the entire events of the trilogy that we just talked about before we watched it. And actually, that was very interesting, watching it with people who are not as keyed into all this Matrix nerd shit the way that I am, and um, watching them sort of just enjoy the movie as a movie, which which they very much did. So yeah, Resurrections. Um, so Jason, let's go back to you, because you were talking about your take on that movie and how you felt about it compared with the recent ones. How did you feel about Resurrections? Yeah, I, well, I think it's brave of um, Lana. It's Lana, right? Yes, yeah, Lana Wachowski. Without Lily. It's brave of Lana to make a movie that's about um, a guy who wins a game award and then tries to kill himself as a result. <laughs> I think that's a brave, a brave take. No, um, I, 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 I enjoyed it. Um, part of why I enjoyed it is because... Uh, uh, watching Neil Patrick Harris and like Jonathan Groth and Yahya Abdul Mahin, yeah. like the the performances are so fun and it had an energy that I don't think Reloaded and Revolutions had, but the first Matrix did have. Um, it's also just a lot of fun um, watching the, these characters like interact again after twenty years, um, and uh, definitely definitely hit me in the nostalgia, which is definitely part of why I enjoyed it. Um, but whether- then Neil Patrick Harris made fun of you for wanting to be hit in the exactly true <laughs> no I, and I, I dig I dig that it kind of feels like um, Lana flipping the bird at Warner Brothers because the story of this of this movie is that Warner Brothers was planning on a Matrix reboot with or without her yeah and uh, she figured might as well see some ownership and there's even like some straight up like FUs to Warner Brothers in the movie like as a result of that which I think is is fun and interesting and fun to watch and um, I always I, I 
dig the love story part of it because I always uh, think that stories are their strongest when they're about love um and when it's when it turns out it reminds me of the leftovers where people were like oh it turned out that was a love story what and that's what was strongest about it um so i i really dig that part of it um and yeah i mean it was just fun fun to watch some parts dragged a little bit i think it could have been a little shorter especially um the beginning section which i think um could have been cut down a little bit but um yeah for the most part i i enjoyed it um more than the sequels more than the other two sequels Mm-hmm. Yeah, Maddie, just quick thoughts on it before we get into the specifics. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> I thought it was <laughs> hilarious and delightful, top to bottom. I really liked the conceit of the Matrix being something that exists in the fiction of this new version of the Matrix that Neil Patrick Harris's character, The Analyst, has created. I liked the idea that this version of the Matrix doesn't necessarily have a one with a capital O, but instead is powered by the longing that Neo and Trinity have for each other, and that that love is what is powering the batteries that make this Matrix run. The fact that they're unhappy and they can't be together, that to me is what the one is. I've seen a lot of people being like, oh, is like Trinity the one this time? Or what? what's no, the situation no. here? And I'm like, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's about the fact that they love each other. That is what the one is. And that is also what is capable of breaking the world, which is very, again, very Sleeping Beauty kiss. But I think it's adorable and delightful. And just all the video game jokiness of it all, I found just so funny and charming. Like the idea of, okay, so Morpheus apparently died in Enter the Matrix. I don't know if you guys knew that. Like canonically, Mm -hmm. the character died in that MMO. The Wachowskis made that canon because they thought it was fun for an MMO to have canonical elements. Like that is the kind of thing that the two of them think is very funny. And I enjoy that about their work personally. Bing, future Kirk here. And Maddie actually asked me to bing my way in here just to, to, issue a slight correction that the game in which Morpheus died was actually The Matrix Online and not Enter the Matrix. And actually, um, also just to mention, there's this fantastic article that they ran over at Polygon by Alex Kane. That's an oral history of the Matrix video games and all of the interesting things that they added to the canon. So we'll link that in the show notes and you should check it out. Um, if you're into The Matrix, it's a really great read. Okay, back to the show. Bing! Um, just the fact that they don't take themselves too seriously, at least in a lot of the interviews with them that I've read, they they like sort of make fun of the Matrix themselves and stuff. And I think that's very fun. Um, and that tone, I think, is really present in Resurrections and in the idea of Neo creating a new version, programming a new version of Morpheus, who is like literally a program now because Morpheus, the real one, is gone. And like just playing around with it and being like, oh, is this is this something I remember? And like that illustrating something deeper about Neo and his memories as being reflected reflected through these games he's made and the programs he's creating and then that program becoming a character in the film I just dug it I really dug <laughs> the video yeah. game of it all just want to say Yaya Abdul-Mateen really making a, a career out of appearing as big CGI um, <laughs> creatures that naked, look like him you should say he can pull it off let's say about that yeah he extremely looks attractive man um he looks great so yeah, I I really like this movie too. I love all of the questions that it raised. It's a fun one to watch a second time. So let's just go through the plot of it because I think that'll get us into a lot of these particulars. Maddie, you already were talking about Morpheus. So this first section mm-hmm. takes place in this what's called a modal 
in the yeah. world of, of this film, which is a matrix within a matrix, basically. But it's mm-hmm. just a tiny little section of the matrix, a.k.a. the beginning of the matrix. And so we get to watch the beginning of the matrix again. And there, it's just so fun. Bugs turns up, who I love, Bugs of, mm-hmm. the, blue, of the blue hair. The um, the captain of the Nemesine, who's there with uh, what's his name? Seek her yeah, operator, Seek. and now the operators appear to you. There's all these cool things that indicate this yeah. is a new this is a new software. Uh-huh. That yeah, they, they don't can, have to use phone booths anymore. Right, they can Bugs just get in and out. Yeah. Right, <laughs> Seek appears in the world in these really cool ways. There's so much of that. As much as this movie can't break technological ground the way that the original mm-hmm. one did, there is some pretty amazing stuff with like people appearing and disappearing. In different yeah. places. The sequence later where he's like looking through the mirror at Neil Patrick Harris and they're yeah. both in both rooms at the same time while he's like going into the mirror is really amazing. Anyways, they're in this modal. It turns out a modal is like a piece of software you create to train another piece of software and they've trained Morpheus, this Morpheus-Smith hybrid um, to uh, become who he needs to become, basically Morpheus, in order to rescue Neo from the Matrix that he is in one level up, which is quite a way to begin. Which Neo has sort of unwittingly created in order to allow himself to be rescued. It's bizarre. Yes. It's endearing and bizarre. It is endearing and bizarre. And so they do a whole thing in there where they're like recreating the beginning, but it's all wrong because like Trinity Mm -hmm. gets in a fight with the agents and she's getting beat up on the roof and it's like, this never happened. And then Bugs is like, this never happened. And I think Mm -hmm. she says, maybe this isn't the story we think it is, which is one of many lines in this film that sort of, you know, our work on multiple levels, which that one definitely does. So they get Morpheus out eventually. And then we zoom out to um, the video game, the video games <laughs> development section of this movie, which I have to say, yeah, I really, I really loved the most fun part. It's strong. It's, it's strong. Great. It's very strong. Even fun. the people who don't seem that into this movie, mostly from what I've seen, agree that the fir- this this section is quite fun to watch. Yes. It's hard not to love it. Because, What's his friend's name? Oh. Noah or something? Jonah. The guy, where he's like, what can I say? I'm a geek. I was raised by machines. <laughs> like, oh, there's all these that whole scene where it's it's basically like a TV writer's room. I mean, this yes. isn't ordinarily how video games are created. It I don't might think so. be useful <laughs> if they were created this way, where everybody's listing the core themes that they want to stick to. Um, but that scene is just it's wonderful because it, it is Lana Wachowski acknowledging all the the yep. metaphors that we just acknowledged, the which interpretations, is like, this yeah. is what the Matrix has meant to so many people. It means trans politics. It means anti-capitalism. It means bullet time, guns, lots of guns. Yes. And like, it's, I, there's a lot of this movie that is making fun of the viewer. And I am so happy to come on board for that. I don't mind being mocked at all. But I do think that that is part of why some people have reacted to it with some defensiveness, because the movie is mocking us. (laughs) It's like, it's funny that you guys think this means anything. But also, it means it's just a love story. Like at the end of the day, it's really just about the love between Neo and Trinity and right. the metaphors are there. They're present. They're meaningful to you, but it's, it's simple at the same time. And you can see there's a, there's so many different layers to the meta humor in this film, but there's this, there are these scenes where people will talk to Thomas Anderson, who Neo now is visionary <laughs> game designer who, or developer who created the matrix and say things to him like, Oh, the matrix meant so much to me. Like, Oh, yep. your story, the story that you wrote, like, you know, that's the reason I got into this. His one partner is like, I almost failed seventh grade. Cause I was like obsessed with your game. And he's so exhausted from people just telling him how much they love mm-hmm. his work. And then there's a joke about how, Oh, it's uh, when he's first talking to Trinity and she or one of the early scenes. And she says something like, 
do you think that you wrote yourself into your game? Like, did you make the main character based on you? And he's like, probably a little bit too much. And that's like funny, you know, in terms of the movie, because of course it is his actual memories. But also this is clearly Lana Wachowski writing herself into into Thomas Anderson and being like, this is my life for the last fucking 20 years. It's like people (laughs) People coming up to me and being like, oh, the Matrix changed my life. You know what it means is like there's a feminist conspiracy out there and you take the red (laughs) pill and she's like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is just so delightful. I mean, it just takes, there's no question that this movie is exactly what she wanted it to be like you do not get the sense watching this that I get from most Marvel movies where it's like, oh, they like, you know, they had to make some compromises. This is a studio <laughs> picture. This is like a passion picture. Sand it some of the edges <laughs> off. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I should note, by the way, that this was also written by David Mitchell and Alexander Hemmen. I'm not familiar with both novelists. David Mitchell mm-hmm. is the author of Cloud Atlas. It's crazy that David Mitchell like co-wrote the screenplay to this film. That's not like, yeah, because they're buddies after the Cloud Atlas. Yes, which uh, is, adaptation. And especially having I I like that I love that book and I do like that movie. I want to rewatch it and rewatch Sense8. But there's a lot of both Sense8 and Cloud mm-hmm. Atlas. I've in been reading Cloud Atlas. Since I saw oh, you're reading it? I'm really enjoying. Oh, I can't it wait so to talk far. to you about it. It's it's an Jason. <laughs> You've got to read it. Too. I just wanted to like keep vibing on the vibe. I, I tried to read it once. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, I don't think I could get into it. Interesting. Yeah, it's I think weird. I bounce off of it. It's a weird book. It's but anyway. doing things, anyways. But um, David Mitchell is is a remarkable author, and so yes, yeah, so the three of them wrote this together, which is, I don't know, it's just this is not a normal blockbuster movie in any sense. And the first sort of forty five minutes of it make that very clear. So let's keep moving. Um, oh, also Christina Ricci. I should mention, isn't that random that Christina Ricci is in like one scene? It is random. Uh, yeah, there's Well, she she escaped the wilderness. Um, <laughs> right. So, she grew up to yeah. yellow jackets. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I feel like cuz she's also credited pretty high up. I feel like maybe there's a scene with her that got cut or something. Like she was oh, maybe, maybe supposed to do more. I have to wonder. She has a cool name too. I forget what it is, but her character's name is like cool, but she's just in the one scene. Anyways, all right. <laughs> So we get this... Gwyn DeVere. Yeah, Gwyn DeVere, right? Like, that's supposed to be somebody, because she's some sort of, you know, agent of of the analyst. So we get the great scene where uh, Morpheus appears to... Um, to Neo in the bathroom wearing that yellow mm-hmm. suit looking like a million bucks but also like constantly like knocking himself he's like man this sucks like I'm giving <laughs> you this speech but we're in the bathroom like <laughs> and he's like making fun of the speech itself while yeah. delivering it and it's like this is one of the most famous speeches ever and mm-hmm. this actor is like reprising it and then also being like this is boring right We do we need to do all of this right and like of course Neo is freaking out and only is willing to take the pill when they show him the scene on like this huge scrim in a in a theater what a, setting almost. god that, that that scene so that yeah so he basically fails he fails the first time to get neo out and then neo mm-hmm. goes through this thing with the analyst where the analyst takes yeah. him through essentially through like real trauma therapy where he's like regrounding himself and like pulling him Although out it's trickery in this case it's right. it's unreal trauma exactly. therapy it's like reverse <laughs> like abusive right. trauma therapy where it's like please re-enter 
denial, the right. denial zone. It's like a tricky river. Neil Patrick Harris, by the way, so good as so a villain, great. as the Slav smarmy villain with his blue glasses. There's a lot of He's a lot amazing. of good blue in this. Yeah, mm-hmm. he kind of reminded me of his Gone Girl character in this a little bit. I don't know if you two have seen that movie. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, hundred oh. percent. I haven't actually seen that movie. No, you haven't seen Gone Girl. Oh man, he, it's a it's a different character, nah. but it's like just I, I don't know. He's good at playing villains anyway. Gone Girl is He's incredible. Fun. You gotta watch that movie. He is. Yeah. A good villain. Yeah, I have the book Gone Girl, and I was thinking about reading it before watching it. I'll watch it one day. Mm-hmm. No, I would watch it first. Actually, having done both, I would watch it first. Oh, okay, maybe I'll watch it. So yeah, th- we get that scene, and then of course he gives him his prescription of blue pills, which is also very funny. And we see <laughs> it is funny. that's where we it get the big funny. montage to Jefferson Airplane to the, yep, which is pretty Dallas. on the nose. Oh yeah, I was thinking that. I wrote that down in my notes as I was watching. Finally, they got the song in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After all these years, finally, finally got it. Yep. That's a great sequence. Also, that's where we get the shot of Keanu Reeves with the duck on his head in his bathtub, yep. <laughs> which is incredibly good. And um, there's also a funny, I think that's when they're talking about the game. There's a great cut where it's some, I think it's actually, it might be Sati when she's undercover. We find out later. Mm-hmm. I think it might be her. She's like, no, it's all about knowledge. Knowledge is the new sexy. And then it cuts to <laughs> Keanu Reeves taking a dump and like reading a book. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff like that that I noticed the second time that's very funny. Um, Anyways, anyways. So, um, yes, so then we get to this set and setting scene, which is so cool because it's like on a film screen showing, I guess, scenes from the game, even though it's just scenes from the movie. Right, but it is scenes from the movie, right? Yeah. And they've cut a hole in the screen and, and then, right, Morpheus is like set and setting, which... Having watched uh, Michael Pollan's book about LSD, there's much discussion of set and setting. Set and setting is like was the fundamental thing that all I think that was maybe Timothy Leary's breakthrough as much as he wasn't helpful to the psychedelic cause. That was something that he figured out or they worked it out around this time. And that is that when you're doing psychedelic uh, therapy or experiments and like regressing and leaving your body or whatever, set and setting is very, very important. So you don't want to just like take a bunch of mushrooms and then go hang out with your friends. Like you want to be in a space that's like very controlled and then um, that's your set. And then the setting is like, what are you looking to accomplish with this? And so you, that's why you want to have a person you talk through with it. So that's where set and setting comes from, which then of course is also referencing the fact that Neo is about to leave his body and leave his consciousness and go Mm -hmm. somewhere new. Yeah, and do a really cool train scene. <laughs> yeah, right. Like that is pretty cool. Exploding. I know. I know there are people um, who aren't fans of the action scenes in this movie, and they are definitely different. I know they didn't bring back the choreographer for the yeah. fight scenes, and like the mm-hmm. super Young fast Wolfram. kung fu. Like the, there's not a lot of that in this no. movie. Like it does look very different. I. I mean, I just feel like that's. Worth noting. Like, I, I understand yeah. that criticism of the film is that the action scenes are super different. They're generally slow and short. And I went back and watched some of the trailers, and there's like a couple trailers that cut it together. Like, the very few action scenes that there are that make it look like this movie's gonna have a lot more fight scenes right. than it really does. So, I, I did, I was thinking of that. And I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic to the people who are like, well, I just wanna see like, some kick-ass kung fu scenes it's not that that's not yeah, that kind of movie no it isn't and i mean part it's of more that psychedelic is... than that it's more about going through a tiny train bathroom mirror <laughs> and, like <laughs> escaping fireballs well the train fight is pretty cool i think part of yes. the kung fu thing is just that the two leads are in their 50s now and like 
Well, because yeah. that was a big deal. And I mean, I know they have a different fight choreographer, but that was a big deal in the movie originally was that Keanu was like a workhorse. He's like, I'm going to do yeah. as much of this fighting as I can. And a lot of those fight scenes, he's doing it, which yeah. he could he could do some of it now. I mean, John Wick shows that John, that uh, Keanu yeah. is still very spry. But, you know, it was it's just kind of a different movie. Also, I should mention um Bill Pope, the cinematographer who did the first movies, if you, you rewatch The Matrix, The Matrix is an amazing looking movie, like or an amazingly mm-hmm. shot movie. There's so much iconic camera work in that. And different cinematographers worked on this film. And it is different looking. I kind of like how it looks, but it's not. There aren't mm-hmm. as many instantly iconic shots as the original Matrix. And also... A lot of the iconic shots in this film are echo shots of the Matrix. You know, like it'll yeah. cut to whatever shells falling from a helicopter in slow motion. And I'm like, well, that's cool looking, but that's just a purposeful echo mm-hmm. of the first film. The, yeah, from a previous film. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there is a lot so, of that. So, yeah, he gets out through the train. I did like the train. Um, and then he kind of wakes up and we actually learn what's going on in the world. So let's, yeah, we can just talk about this. I don't need to recap the whole thing. What it, let's go through this section. I like I liked the part when, when Niobe is like, it's, I, it's Zion. And then um, Justin Timberlake comes out and he's like, actually, drop the Z. It's cleaner that way. And then he's like, oh, hi. <laughs> drop the Z and the N. <laughs> drop the Z and the N. I guess the, the big revelations here are that yeah, that it's no. They've left Zion and they live in Io, which I take to be a play on in out Io, which is like another binary in the way that this okay. film is. I don't know, but it could be a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think of it that way. This is a new. I thought they just they were on the Destiny planet. Um, the <laughs> right, Destiny right. Planet. Isn't that a moon? Isn't that like a moon? Yeah, yeah. yeah the Destiny Two moon. Yes, I believe, yes, yes, I yes. believe it's a moon of Jupiter. <laughs> um, not just in Destiny, but in the actual solar system. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's a real in, place. in reality? Which is Destiny, of course. Right. The, yeah, which yeah, Destiny yeah, yeah. is the real world, of course. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, yeah, the, anyway. <laughs> the big things we learn are that there's a new city and that in this city, um, machines, some machines who have left the machines behind are now working with the humans. And that is because there was this power crisis in the machine world that led to a machine civil war. And then mm-hmm. a new power rose, which we now know is the architect, um, building a new matrix that was creating more. The oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so many names. I can't blame you. A new yeah. power rose, which we now know is the analyst, um, getting that power from from Neo and Trinity. They're resurrected corpses and their love powering right. the new matrix. Um, and Niobe with possibly the worst old age makeup. <laughs> oh, there has been a lot worse. I didn't think it was that bad. I've seen way worse. It's pretty, it's pretty bad. It's funny how they can digitally like unage people, but they still have such trouble in movies like uh, making, making people, people look, look older. older. Yeah. You know, I didn't think it was that bad, but I did rewatching it. There are like 10 lines where she's like, I'm old. I'm so old. <laughs> yeah, I'm so old now. Yeah. She's like, it's not fair, but getting old's also not fair because look at me, uh-huh. I'm old. And then there's a, uh-huh. she's like, I am uh-huh. too old to be. I'm like, that. okay, Naomi, we get it. You're an old <laughs> yeah, lady now. Old. <laughs> no, but it's funny. You watch like like the new Spider Man. I mean, obviously Doc Ock is in it from the trailers. Hey, hey, and hey, he, hey. I'm not saying he just looks. He looks like old Doc Ock, and like it yeah. actually looks incredible. Um, or like um. Uh, the new Martin Scorsese movie where they have de-aged like Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro. It's uh, uh, uncanny, yeah. but like they can't age people well, up. So I was funny. less sold by that. I was less sold yeah. by the de-aging. But yeah, no, I actually think that of the aging in this movie, I think that the aging of, the real aging of Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss is like among the more beautiful things in this film. Just seeing them be kind of a little older and still in love, mm-hmm. uh, I just thought was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah. I mean, they still look incredible. They're they also are both like very good utterly they beautiful <laughs> human beings just due to their genetics. It's and true. so we can just acknowledge that, right? I mean, that was the other thing. I feel like I just need to say, like rewatching the Matrix movies, Keanu Reeves is one of the most beautiful humans ever. He's like, a he's remarkable looking person. He's gorgeous. Yes. Like, holy shit. He was yeah. 33 in the first movie. He looks like a million bucks. Anyway, back was, to this movie. And he's <laughs> good in this. I think he is really legitimately good in a way that I think has now been acknowledged that Keanu Reeves is actually yeah. a good actor. People made fun of him and I'm like, why? He's killing it. His deliveries, <laughs> he has great. this way of talking. I can't do it where he swallows some of his words a lot. Mm-hmm. And then he only gets a little bit of this way later. It's actually at the very end when he and Trinity are riffing with one another. But they have such chemistry. That anyone who hasn't, if you haven't played The Matrix Awakens, I guess, that yeah, the thing on PS5 and Xbox Series X, there is a very fun scene of the two of them doing that same banter where they do like little lines back and forth at one another. And it's really good. So um, maybe that can be motivation for people to check that out. Yeah, I think one of the reasons Keanu has gotten flack for his performances in The Matrix movies is because of the dialogue. Because, like, for all of the Matrix movies' merits, the dialogue can be wooden at times, especially Keanu's. Uh, and it's become kind of a joke. Like, I know Kung Fu is such a silly thing he now, says I still know but it Kung also Fu. is so stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now I'm saying it again. Yeah. I still know Kung Fu. Um, it's a fun, fun little joke, but also wooden. Let me wind us through the plot a little bit more, just because we should move faster through the plot and we can just talk whatever we're, we're doing fine um <laughs> so there, thank you we, thank you for the pep talk we're, we're doing we're doing great we're doing a good job everybody really excellent work <laughs> but, well we're going kind of long but also whatever it's the matrix so we could go for another three hours um so they uh we learn basically that there is a piece and that io has been existing out away from the machines and that Niobe's whole thing has kind of been like, we don't get involved, we don't go to the Matrix, and actually like Bugs going and getting Neo out was like kind of a renegade up, and that even yep. going into the Matrix is a provocation because there is an unsteady piece, and the machines aren't actively hunting and trying to kill the people who are free, and the people who were in the Matrix are allowed to be free. There's one line that I missed before, but it's when uh, Bugs is talking about seeing Keanu jumping off the building and it waking her up. And she's like, until then, I was like any other copper top pretending my life. And Mm -hmm. that implies just something very fundamentally different from the original movie that I think is really cool. And that is that all of the people who are in this matrix are there by choice and they're just pretending their way through their lives and just feeding this system, you know, all of their dreams and their hopes that the Matrix is just happy to sort of devour. There's a line later about that. And I just think that that is is a very interesting framing. So anyways, we learn about that. And then they go on this rogue, another renegade op to try to go get Trinity because of course they do. And so they they break out and they go into the Matrix um, to try to get Trinity out. And then they get to the scene that I think should have been cut from the film, which is where they run into the Merovingian in a warehouse. And it's just like, what the hell is going on for like 10 minutes? Yeah, I don't. I got to admit, I didn't fully understand this scene. I <laughs> I don't really get it. There was another guy, too, like another disheveled guy who just never really made sense. In addition to the Merovingian. Merovingian. Well, so, yeah. there's, so Smith shows up. So rewatching this, I was like, OK. Even just watching the room, like watching Emily's parents and Emily, just seeing everybody react to that scene where they show up looking like Pirates of the Caribbean, like extras. And then the Merovingian is yelling all this shit in in French. And, and then the, yeah, later French he talks about English like, and... he talks about I'll be back for a sequel or a spinoff. It's just like not good and it shouldn't have been in the movie. It could have been because it is an important scene because Smith also shows up. This is, um, of course, Jonathan Groff 
um, King as George himself. revealed as yes. <laughs> Agent Smith, yeah. the, the rebooted version of Agent Smith. He comes up and he's like, you'll be back yes. to the Matrix. And then he spits. <laughs> right? Yeah, he spits. <laughs> <Some> <laughs> into the air. I love Jonathan Groff. Spits I love him in everything. I just think he's great yeah. in everything I see him in. Um, mm-hmm. It is kind of funny to me. I mean, this movie has a lot of queer over and undertones anyway, but yeah. like the fact that there's Jonathan Groff and Neil Patrick Harris in yes. this movie as like kind of the two sparring villains yes. for Keanu's beautiful self is very yes. I don't I love it oh, it's, it's great it, it adds a layer of campiness to yes, proceedings that you either love or hate and I just happen to think was really fun the only thing campier would be if it ended with like a musical number and the two <laughs> Which of them is, singing I mean, at it each other practically it feels like it's does. constantly <laughs> on the verge of doing that like it does feel like West Side Story is just a theater away, you know, like the snapping. It does end with them, yeah, like dancing through the air, yeah. Mm. Um, So this is, I rewatching this, I finally understood what was going on. So what's happened here is Smith turns up. This scene could have just been different, and I agree Mm -hmm. they needed more for like the crew of the Nemesine to do. By the way, Nemesine, Greek goddess of memory, like Nebuchadnezzar Ah, from the first film, which is about resurrection. Um, so that is their ship is named the Nemesine. I think the crew of the Nemesine is really cool. It's actually a lot of actors from Sense8, um, all these very attractive people who were also in that film. And like, I mean, like they kind of each have a look and like a really cool style, but they're not as, I would say, not as memorable as the crew in the first film. Anyways, they needed something to do. And I get why this scene exists, because they needed something to do. But also, not this. Did they? Did they need to have the Merovingian come and yell a bunch of stuff about spinoffs and sequels and curse in French? I don't know that they did. Um, And so Smith comes out and explains basically that he is tied to Neo and that if I guess if Neo is going to be in, this is my understanding of it, if Neo is going to be in the Matrix, then Smith needs to be there too. Because the one and Smith are like counters of one another, which became established in the original trilogy. But now that Neo is unplugged from the Matrix and is free, Smith is also free. And Smith really likes that because Smith is like, look, I've got stuff to do. I have some big plans that he doesn't go into. But he's like, I'm going to go first. I'm going to go deal with the analyst because that guy's in charge. And then I'm going to go from there. But he shows up to stop them. And the reason they fight is because he's like, you can't come back. Like, you need to stay gone because if you come back and get captured again... I'll be captured again as well. And he says something like, I, I won't have that guy's leash on my neck again. Something right. slightly kinky. Something <laughs> homoerotic. So, yeah. Is it ever made clear <laughs> is it ever made clear why Smith isn't Smith anymore? Like why he's Jonathan Groth instead of yeah. uh Elrond? There's a line about it. I assume it's because this is a completely new matrix, and so therefore everyone looks different, including Neo. Right. There's a line about it, and he says, They made you you, and they made me. Even more perfect. <laughs> That's a very, very funny line. Sure. Because it's like Jonathan Goff. He's like, I think the piercing blue eyes were maybe a bit much, but hey. <laughs> like, right. But like funny. even Neo and Trinity or Tiffany don't look like themselves. They only look like themselves yes. to us. I was a little sad they didn't like have Hugo Weaving show up a little bit for I some know. scenes. Right. I know. Though he did do a pretty good Hugo Weaving impression. By the way, the guy in um, Revolutions who plays the live action Hugo oh. Weaving amazing impression. Really impressed by that guy. Very good yeah, Hugo Weaving impression. Yeah, really good Hugo Weaving impression. Anyways, not to get <laughs> sidetracked. So, 
basically, he goes and uh, he does manage to meet her. He uh, They do this fight. The Smith fucks off. He goes and meets Trinity. Of course, she's like, or Tiffany, I should say. She's like in her amazing warehouse working on motorcycles and like sparks right. are flying everywhere and shit. Yeah, this is like the hobby she's taken on to try to feel something right. in the midst of like her boring soccer mom life. Yeah. Right. And so then um, we get the kind of villain reveal. If you didn't already figure out that the analyst was the big bad, especially from Smith kind of explaining that, now we know. Mm -hmm. And he shows up and he does this whole thing where he rewinds time and shows that he has absolute control and like he could kill them at any moment. And he threatens um, Trinity and is like, you need to come back because if you don't, um, I'll kill her. And then uh, that's pretty much it. They run away. They barely get away. And then they're, t they're brought back to Io. Niobe is really pissed. She, like, yells at them some. And then they eat a strawberry. When do they eat the strawberry? I think that happened I, earlier. <laughs> I found that very odd in terms of, like, Matrix lore. I, I know <laughs> I'm kind of obsessed with food in the Matrix. But I do you guys think that strawberries didn't exist before people created machines that then took over the world and then we destroyed the sky and then reverted back to 1999. No, they and... just, wait, I don't know. No, they just have never had strawberries because they've all lived in this Matrix world. So they have to base it on what the strawberries tasted like in the Matrix yeah. because, yes. yeah. okay. They've okay. never tasted real food in real life because they there's nobody who's lived their life pre -Matrix. Because that would have been thousands and thousands of yeah. years ago that strawberries well, existed. Yeah, I don't know when in the no well, yeah, in, the, in, the, in the first Matrix they say it's like twenty one hundred something, so it's not thousands. Okay, of years. so it's just it's like two hundred years yeah. or something. But yes, but nobody in in the real world in this canon has ever tasted a strawberry until that point. Got it. Got There's it. even some discussion I think right in the first film about you're eating real food at least, like it's not bullshit that this computer yeah, is telling yeah. you is right. real, which so right. it tastes even better. But yeah, right. It right. would it would stand to reason that there are definitely no strawberries because that's like a pretty hard thing to grow, and that they could only do it by like synthesizing. Yeah. It was just something I always thought was unsettling about the first Matrix movie. I think intentionally so is the fact that when they finally get to the real world, it's not super awesome. Like everybody's right. just wearing like ratty shirts and like yeah. the food is shitty like protein crap that you would never right. want to eat but it's like yes at least it's real food at least you're like having right. real scratchy sweaters on your on your shoulders but it's also awful i mean i i don't know so i kind of liked seeing that in resurrections at least now the real world looks like they've kind of gotten their shit together a bit and they they can make some food and also they had to work together with machines to do it, right. which I think is another interesting piece of that, is that the isolationist version of humanity was it was not quite there, like didn't quite have it all figured out, and we had to find some other way to make it work. Or, I mean, the other sp the other potential angle on this, which is what I interpreted from the film, is that like, uh oh, these humans are like doing making the same mistake again, and like they're gonna they're relying <laughs> oh, really? on machines. Wow. Wow. I yeah did not read that. That's a dark read. Yeah, I read it as them. Uh oh, they're starting to build a society where they're gonna be super reliant on machines, and when the machines take over again, uh oh, they're in trouble. Well, did you ever watch the Animatrix? Because it's pretty different than what led no. the Matrix the first. Time. Well, the first time it was very much like they, we created a slave race of robots and we treated them mm. horribly mm. and then they became sentient. Now sentience exists. So 
all of the machines that are helping are sentients. They're called synthians. I thought it was sentience right. at first too, but it's synthians. Synthians, okay, and um, and so that and they are already. But they're very obe- obedient. Uh, no, for... they're people. Like they are people yeah, with their people. own desires and their own freedom. Like they all are. Morpheus mm. isn't out here doing what everybody says. He he disobeys yeah, Nairobi's he's orders like constantly just the same as everybody else. That's true. I thought he was a program, though. I don't. But know. he is. He is. He is a he's, but he is a sentient program. But he can experience love. I mean, that's I. I feel like the parts that confuse people are like, who is Sati? Like she is proof that the machines are capable of reproducing and creating life right. out of their own love. I mean, that's how Sati exists, and she is also a program. But she's the product of two programs, two machines. That's in um, Revolutions, right? The train yes, station we scene. we learn about her. And I that, really liked yeah, that scene. Wait a minute, but programs aren't like, a program in the Matrix isn't like corresponded to a specific machine. They're just like software in the Matrix. Well, they're that's also like, why they no... don't call them machines and why they, one reason probably they prefer to be called synthians. Right. They call them synthians, but they can create a version just... of them that is in the real world. That's why Morpheus in the real world is like a bunch of little yeah, that's that technology that they've developed. Spheres. Right, but that yeah, that's a new thing. That's a new technology, but I don't right. think it's like a machine. But he started out as a program. But there's a difference between a yes, but there's a difference between like, hey, we're going to take this program and find a way for it to manifest in the real world and here's a machine and it's like the a, like a machine a that exists in the real world is different yeah. than a program that can manifest in Well, it's I think it, we don't really know because the machines I themselves all, are very yeah, kind of are very obtuse. vague. But I do think that there is there is a there are specific consciousnesses. There are individual individualized minds that exist within the machine world. The machine world is all networked, so it's like a type of consciousness that doesn't map one to one to humanity. But there are individualized people who we meet. I mean, like Sabebe, the really wonderful big robot. That is like (laughs) an individualized intelligence. A name straight out of the Star Wars prequel. The bird Kojaku, who carries around um, uh, Sati within it. Like Sati is Mm -hmm. also an individualized person who even takes on like the appearance of a person, the same as Morpheus. And they've created all these ways to, again, like blur this binary between the digital world and the real world, which is way just truer to like life in 2021 and also just more interesting and kind of carries that line. I mean, it's like bugs having blue hair. Like there's there are these these all there are constantly these signs that like everything in this world like blurs the lines between the machines and the humans and that that's actually like a really good thing. And that's the mm-hmm. way forward, which is also, you know, the machines helping helping humanity grow the strawberry. I really like the little machine, by the way, who's working in the botany lab. I don't know who the actor yeah. is who plays him, but he just seems very nice. <laughs> that scene is really yeah. nice. Yeah. I saw somebody compare that to Babu Frick in Rise of Skywalker, where it's like, it's nice to just have a little guy in a movie. <laughs> oh, that little like, robot that he like little, just yeah. bumps yeah. in the... The yeah, little for... robot. Oh, is that not who you're talking no, about? I'm, no, sorry. I'm talking about he looks like a man. He's the, he's the assistant. Oh, okay. He's like the head botanologist or whatever who's helping the botanist grow the strawberries but he's another cloud of little balls. I think maybe I'm I'm joining Jason that there are too many characters at least in this particular moment there are, I mean <laughs> this part is like sure the, the whole, all characters. the stuff on IO is a little less interesting than the stuff in the matrix okay so anyways let's just yeah and the res- and revolutions is all stuff in the real world but yeah go on let's, <laughs> let's go through the end of the film I mean we could go on about this forever but let me just so basically then they realize okay we actually need to get Trinity out because that's the way that we can stop this matrix and that we can save everybody and we can create this better future but like only if we get 
Trinity out because there's all this mm-hmm. stuff going on. This is where we learn that there are the authorities that the analyst answers to, these vague, bigger machines that, you know, are, are intelligences than him. And he is still actually just a middle manager. Got to set up for Matrix 5. I wonder. We'll, Don't even we'll talk say about that. that. I wonder if there's, they could, because Smith also, his plans are kind of vague. Anyways, um, Niobe is like, I need people to go. And there's a very funny scene where like Bugs is like, I'm volunteering. And she's like, you're not volunteering, you're going. <laughs> like, it's like, who else is going? And they're all like, we're all going. And they all go in. And um, they go in to, to rescue Trinity. And it turns into this heist, which is pretty cool. Um, rewatching it also. It's fun. They frame it like a heist. They do the heist planning, intercut with the heist being executed, which is all very neat. Mm-hmm. It relies mm-hmm. on the machines working with the people and using their special abilities. Morpheus can sneak in, et cetera, et cetera. Also kind of a throwback to the first one where they the, the climax of the film is them rescuing right Murphy. is a rescue <laughs> yeah um, they do a cool thing that they set up where there's like they have to do this like splice for a minute because they have to pull Trinity out of the machine pull mm-hmm. her out of the matrix rather without um, you know uh Neil Patrick they have Harris. to transfer her brain yes. with, as well. And safely, because you can't just unplug someone from the Matrix. So they like... Which I thought was cool that they explained yes. that. I yes. was like, oh, that actually makes sense. <laughs> I mean, insofar as anything And makes it visually sense. makes sense when you watch it happen, too, where they plug bugs in and she is mm-hmm. like a stand-in just for long enough to switch them in and out. So anyways, yep. they get Trinity. There's this great scene where they meet, they fight, blah, blah, blah. This is kind of the climax of the movie. They escape. Let's just talk about this in general. What did you two think of this sequence? Trinity can fly. <laughs> Trinity can fly. Yeah, I mean, I I love I love the ending. Yeah, um, yeah, and I love that it's just a love story. Like I said before, so that worked mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, really enjoyed the ending. Really enjoyed watching them just own Neil Patrick Harris. Very good. <laughs> they have such fun banter chemistry, and they almost never get to do it, even though they also are very good at longingly looking at one another. They really are. They get a lot of like backlit longing looks at one another that are just beautiful to gaze upon. Oh my god, uh, yes, and that is as a thing. Are they both. That is a thing where this version of the Matrix is like a very beautiful looking place. Like every time you mm-hmm. see flashbacks to the original Matrix, it's so ugly and horrible. And also a thing yes. I noticed that I think is interesting is that this new Matrix has actual locations. They're, of course, are in the Bay Area. They're in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And when they're yeah. on that train, they're like generic. outside of Tokyo. And yeah, it they shows go to Tokyo. Mount yeah, Fuji, yeah, yeah. which in the first film and rewatching them, if you remember, there's a part where like, um, it get, it's shot in Chicago. It looks like Chicago, but it's really just a city. And there's a part where, uh, I think it's in, the, it's in uh, Reloaded, when uh, Neo runs out and he's on that mountain, like in the fort. And uh, the operator is like, oh, man, you're in the mountains. <laughs> and it's like, like he's, it's like a video game. Like, oh, yeah, there's just the mountains. Those are outside of the city. Like there was yeah. no specific location. And now in this Matrix, it's like this lovingly recreated San Francisco because they're trying to tempt people to stay. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, though, the one thing I wish these movies would explore more is more people like Cypher who are like into like I, I, I wish the movie the movies would spend more time on this idea of like people not wanting to leave the Matrix, especially mm-hmm. in this new one when the Matrix seems so much more compelling. Um, and I almost wish we had gotten a little bit more of that with Neo like I feel like it would have been interesting to see if he if there would have been some tension there I guess that wasn't the story they wanted to tell because he was <sighs> depressed from the get go and it's but, tough with it when it's already two hours and 40 minutes long like, no it's true but but yeah. I do wish like I would totally watch another Matrix movie that is more that is just about like 
the blue pilling people, the people who choose to be there and like that, the tension of that choice. Cause it seems like it could be really compelling, especially like I, I sympathize with Cypher. He looks around, he's like, this is a shithole. Like I want to live in <laughs> well, that steakhouse. Like, yeah, the, yeah. The big picture idea is introduced in this film in a really interesting way that feels very updated for 2021 compared to the view of technology from 99, where now it's like, well, technology loves you. Like the whole uh-huh. idea that the analyst would be the one running this like the architect was this machine right and that was the whole thing right. the oracle was always like yeah, well, that he was guy. like a professorial right. like sort of condescending godlike figure and the way he right. thinks is like he's like i think totally logically and i made this perfect system that didn't work and the only way mm-hmm. that i could get around it was to design an intuitive program the oracle who could then figure you weird humans out and now <laughs> yeah. it's like the analyst is definitely like a leveled up version of that because his whole thing is he's like you know, I just emotionally tell- manipulative. Yes, yeah, right. he, he but he understands. Everyone. He understands emotion. He gives a whole speech about narrative, and he's like, he's like the shit you people love, like the stories <laughs> that you like to tell yourselves. Like he's like, all I need to do is just like give it a narrative and like turn it into something that you'll buy, and you'll fucking do anything. Like he's and he's basically. He's like a tech bro. Like he's like a designer of of a social media network or something like cracking people and figuring out how to like get them endlessly compelled. There's so many lines in this that feel the way the Internet can feel when they're like, that's what this matrix does is it takes your dreams. It takes your hopes and it like just feeds on them and you just give it to them endlessly. And it's Mm -hmm. totally the way that that. Um, online Twitter life works? can feel now. Yeah, like completely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're not paying for Twitter except with our souls. Yeah, right. it's uh-huh. exactly like uh-huh. that. You go into the matrix and you get that dopamine hit. Yeah, I mean, no wonder they can. Comp- no wonder it's all the the first forty minutes describes it as a video game. It's like very much like. Well, that's I think interesting though because the end of the movie is also a bit of a redemption for games, where it's like, well, it's not inherently evil to be in the right. matrix yeah. because Neo and Trinity at the end. It's implied they're going to stay and just mess around in there and right, just have like some a rainbow fun. Sky. Just have some good times in this sort of video sure. game world. I wonder, doesn't that kind of it feels like that undercuts the message of the original movie, doesn't it? It does. But that's why it owns. Every single subsequent <laughs> Matrix movie undercuts the message of the original movie. But, that's but if you yeah, I, I guess so. But I guess if you if you take it as a trans allegory what is it trying to say like how do you extrapolate that further are they are you saying that like actually you should it's just that like gender is fake and that everything's a spectrum man and like i guess that's that's a good I, you know identity is is a construct but that doesn't mean it's not also real to you and like emotional to you but it's also constructed and you're just aware of it Absolutely. As long as you're aware of it, you can straddle the line. Or decide which parts of it you want to incorporate into your life or not, you know? Yeah, it's that like you you start with maybe one binary and you remove that. And then soon you start removing a whole bunch more. And then by the time you get to the fourth movie, it's like, wow, fuck all these binaries. Like, let's just put everything like lives in some gray area. And, uh, Mm -hmm. And that even applies to interpretations of the film. Like it doesn't. Just like all the other movies, this can be interpreted a thousand different ways. Like so many different people. Yeah, I mean that's just my take on it. Like I right. don't, I don't know. <laughs> because there is no like that's also the binary between there being an actual intended read or best read of this film and there not being like that also doesn't exist. Like this movie, it just contains way, way too much for that, which is one of the mm-hmm. best things about it. Like there hasn't been a movie you know, since maybe the last Matrix movie where I just walked away from it being like, well, I want to talk about this for a hundred years with everybody that I know forever. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Clearly you did not see Norbit. 
That's true. I did not see Norbit. I heard I heard it was a really provocative film. <laughs> I'm still asking questions about it. Yeah, I, I I will say I've read a lot of criticisms of this movie because I'm like trying to understand why people were yeah. so disappointed in it. And I still kind of don't get it. But that's okay with me, you know? It's it's fine. It's like how I read about why people hated The Last Jedi. And all the things they hated were, like, my favorite parts. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay, you know? I just have to accept that my favorite thing is something somebody else thought was really dumb. <laughs> There's definitely know. a Last Jedi parallel here as a fellow Last Jedi lover. There, are, it, yeah. it, There's just a sort of similarity to the reaction. It is a very divisive film. I do think so, yeah. And I think there's even a structural similarity where yes. it's like, yes, like this is how Ryan Johnson sees the Star Wars right. lore. Like this, these are the pieces of it that he thinks are the most fascinating, but they just so happen to be pieces that other people think suck ass. <laughs> and it's like... Oh, well. Also, these are the pieces of it that are self-critical. Like, he's willing to be critical yes. of the Jedi and to yeah. put forth the idea that maybe, like, the Jedi shouldn't even exist, which was something that I think a lot of people were like, what the fuck? Like, this, no, like, Star Wars is my life and, like, the Jedi are good. Right. But that's what this movie's doing, right. too, is kind of making fun of the idea that the Matrix has to be escaped and it's inherently evil. Like, this movie right. ends with Trinity and Neo being like well, maybe we go back in there and we do some stuff. Right. I don't know. There might fun. be a way to make that one work. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's fascinating. Yeah, I dig I dig that. I dig that. Um, although I think that, well, I don't know. I, I, I've seen a lot of discourse about how this movie is awful and I haven't read it too deeply, so I'm not sure where people are coming from in general. Mm-hmm. But my position, I already explained all the things I didn't like about the second and third movies, and it felt like this movie was much cleaner and much better at doing away with that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know, I guess I guess my interpretation is just a little bit different of what this movie is trying to do, yeah. or what it's trying to highlight of the, the first three movies. I think that if, yeah. and I, you know, I, it's always dicey just speaking for other people, or like vague, pe- like haters, or whatever, like people who don't like this movie, which is, of course... It's perfectly valid if you don't like this movie. Yeah, I'm sure there are lots of reasons not to like it or to be critical of it. There are plenty of things that, that maybe don't work. But I think that if you generally view the first Matrix as perfect, the sequels as ruining it, and the series is as in need of redemption, and you are looking to Resurrections to redeem it and go back to like what the, made the first Matrix great... You did not get that. In fact, you got a movie that went even farther and even more explicitly and creatively down the same path that had been charted by Reloaded and Revolutions. And so, like, which I am fine with because I love watching thoughtful, creative people, like, follow their ideas as far as they possibly can, which is like what this movie is doing, rather than being like, oh, well, the fans wanted us to go back. So let's just do another origin story and it'll just be really clean and really sweet action and whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that would just be so much less interesting than this. And so I'm glad we got this. Yeah. And I I like meta references and I like it when creators both make fun of themselves and make fun of the idea of what they're doing. That's just the kind of a kind of humor I happen to really enjoy, which I know not everyone does. Like I can totally I have seen criticisms that I can understand, even if I don't agree with them, where people are like, I didn't like how funny it was. I didn't like how mocking it was. And I, I felt turned off by that. Whereas I'm I like to make fun of myself and my own obsessive interests. And so if a movie is like, you like The Matrix a little too much, and that's kind of silly, I'm okay with that. Like, I'm like, yeah, it is a little silly, but also The Matrix freaking owns. And like, the movie kind of does let you have that cake and eat it too in a way that I think is charming mm-hmm. uh, and anything anything that takes down hardcore fandom is is okay by me 
Same, same. And I I also think a lot of it is just Lana Wachowski herself looking at that fandom and how much it's impacted her life and her work and and criticizing the work itself, but also following up on it and being like, this is the story about it that's still the most meaningful to me is this love story. And that's cool. Like you can do that while also making fun of the thing a little bit at the same time. And that's that's totally fine with me. Yeah, there were the, the humor to me was was totally fine. And I am also, yeah, into just, you know, someone making fun of their own creation and having fun with yeah. it because you're allowed to do that. If you made something, you yeah. really are allowed Who to better? make subsequent <laughs> things making fun of it. I love a couple of jokes that are very funny. First off, it's very funny that Tiffany's husband is named Chad, but it's mm-hmm. doubly it's partly funny because of the whole incel Chad. You know, of course, yes. her husband would be named yeah. Chad. But also Chad is played by Chad Stahelski, who was Keanu Reeves' stunt double on um, the first Matrix and now is like the director of the John Wick films. No way. So he directed I didn't know John that Wick 1 connection. and 2. Yeah. And he's named Chad. So it's like he truly is a double for Keanu Reeves yes. in a way. Yes. He is a wow. Chad. Yes. Wow. So like Wild. she is partnered with a guy who is actually named Chad who was Keanu Reeves' <laughs> double in the original film and is also a great director who, who directed uh, John Wick 1 and I think 2 as well. So I that's think that's very cool. funny. And I also have to just shout out the part where Neo tries to fly. <laughs> it's like yeah. the funniest shit when he's like, all right. And then he's like, yeah, no, it's yeah. Not, that's not happening. <laughs> and then it's like he looks so goofy. Like he's like, yeah. And then he just kind of lands. Oh, my God. That was so funny. Um, I'm too old for just this shit. He's, yeah, he's, that good. they're willing to go there and have him like his big hero moment. Just undercut it so much and have him look so goofy and kind of old. Uh, it was just made him, me like him even more. And I really like Keanu Reeves. Oh man! All right, we've we've gone long. That's fine. There's so much to say. We had a lot to <laughs> yeah, say, this but was fun. let's uh, let's wrap up. I guess. Well, we'll see you back for Matrix Five. Yeah, uh, I don't want electric, them to make another one. I don't I'm, either. I'm cool if it ends here. Uh, personally, I'm Same. cool if it ends here. I think this is a fun. I ending. I, I, I was cool if they had ended with one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's always been fine for the Matrix to end. That is actually a good yeah, point. Yeah, the, the Matrix is one of the things. I meant to say this earlier, but one of the things about rewatching the Matrix today is that like. No movie has existed like this or could exist like this. There's nothing, there's no there's big nothing budget comparable, movie anymore. I don't think that no. is something. Well, there's no big budget movie anymore that's completely original and not based off of something. Yep. Like it just doesn't happen anymore. And so new franchises are no longer. Well, but it's also such a creative idea. No, and, but, but what I'm talking about specific, but, but I'm talking about one specific thing, which is that like there's no new franchise being created. It's all entirely based on books, based on comics, based on things that are already Exist, and there's nobody out there who would put two hundred million dollars well, or whatever into like the, a single original franchise. There's Christopher the Nolan and Christopher Nolan's films. No, I'm serious. Like Inception and Tenet. Well, but he wasn't. He's no longer an unknown in the way that the Wachowskis were when they oh, made. Oh, sure, but the we first made. Okay, I see. But we, but I mean, but we do sometimes get people putting hundreds of millions of dollars into original well, yes. standalone ideas. But it's like he is the exception that proves the rule. It's not disproving what you just said. Like he's basically the only director who's able to do that. I mean, like, even James Cameron is, like, making Avatar. Yeah, and you could say, like, James Cameron created Avatar. Well, but the Avatar was also an original creation and back when it came out, I suppose. But the idea is that, like, like this is, it feels like a relic in so many ways. Yes, it's very um, unusual. But also, it's a relic in that, like, it exists, it's so perfect as a film, the first Matrix, and should have just, like, could have just been this perfect, self-contained thing, but had to turn into a franchise. And that, that almost feels like a shame you know, to me. though, but 
an important distinction is that it it had to turn into a franchise because the creators weren't done saying what they had to say. It didn't have to turn into a franchise because it was forced to. And I mean, maybe well, I'm sure it was actively encouraged to, but the feeling that I get watching it is not, oh, they just needed him to make more of these. It was that the Wachowskis had a thing that they wanted to say after finishing the first film, and they were like, we're not there yet. And they're kind of still, apparently still maybe. saying it. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Could be. Man. Well, this has been a lot of fun. God, we could just go on forever. This is a, a very a very fun movie to talk about. And if nothing else, um, that is that is a, a great point in its favor. So yeah, um that's that's it for this for this beans cast. We'll probably return to the Matrix at some point down the road. Maybe we'll all play Enter the Matrix together and do a oh. beans cast on it or something. But for <laughs> or now the single player ones would be easier. I don't yeah. think Enter the oh, Matrix is still playable. Enter the Matrix is single player, but um oh, it's okay. Matrix sure. Online is the one that's, that's Oh right. I'm, yeah, I'm thinking Matrix Online. Though, yeah. Enter the Matrix was maybe never playable. So <laughs> yeah, Enter the Matrix. That was that was the first game I bought that just didn't work on yeah. my computer. Yep. I remember. Yeah. I, fun I bet it would work now. I bet your current PC could run it. Probably a way to play it. That would be fun. But anyways, for now, <laughs> this is enough Matrix for for quite a while. Thank you all so much out there listening for being members. We really appreciate you. And uh, yeah, we we hope you liked this this bonus episode. And we'll be back in your feed with regular episodes soon. I'll see the two of you when I see ya. See ya. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you're listening to this bonus episode, it means you're already a member, so thank you. We really appreciate your support. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.